Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights, the podcast for the CyberEd.io learning community. Our goal is to bring cybersecurity practitioners the latest and most relevant education and training to upskill and dive deeper into topics that matter in today's modern cybersecurity world. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the Managing Director at CyberEd.io. In today's podcast, we have the pleasure of Aaron Cockerell's company. He's the Chief Strategy Officer for Lookout. Over the last few years, uh, Lookout has divested itself of its consumer business and is now a thriving cloud-native company focused on delivering converged SASE and uh, secured service edge uh, to the enterprise. Aaron has been with Lookout for over eight years, joining them from Citrix, where for 12 years he ran an 80-person mobile engineering team and built some patented product and held various roles in product management. And then Akamai before that, and where he led product management and grid computing and earned his master's degree from Stanford, an undergraduate degree in engineering from the University of Wollongong. So welcome, Aaron. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks very much. Great to be here. Great. So let's start with zero days. They're uh, bad and getting worse. How do we how do we stop them? I don't think you're ever going to stop zero days. Um, uh, you know, zero days are where we make mistakes as as software developers. Uh, but I, I think that trying to solve them is going to be less of a problem. To be honest, if you look at where people are placing their um, you know, applications and data, it's increasingly in environments that are managed by other people. And ma- so let's use um, software as a service, for example. And so if you're moving your, I don't know, human resources or um, CRM infrastructure from on-prem uh, Windows machines or whatever to, to cloud-based infrastructure that's managed by someone else, I think zero days in that scenario become less of a problem as the initial threat vector for an attack. And and why why would that be? Well, because the people that are hosting the SaaS infrastructure are focused on at least maintaining that infrastructure and defending it. So they'll run multiple different versions of servers in order to ensure that um, you know, that infrastructure company attacked with one particular zero day. Um, they'll run uh, isolation environments to ensure that um, that zero day doesn't allow the bad actors to escape, move laterally into different places. I mean, their whole livelihood is reliant on that infrastructure um, being secure. I think it's more likely that we'll see attacks take a change, at least in their initial attack vector. Yeah, so it's curious, though. You know, if I look at uh, what Move Move It and that recent attack, which I think is now we're up to 160, 170 customers that have been affected or that have acknowledged that they're affected. That, in many people's minds, was a zero day attack, though it's exactly the same attack that Solar Winds had before it. I'm curious as to why why you think that we can't do a better job of protecting against the inevitable here. Whenever you've got a third-party product like that with a broad install base, wouldn't you think that you would be a a likely target going forward? Yes, um, but there are, say, for example, there are technologies that 
you could use that are available today to, um, for example, move, avoid move it being direct internet facing. That would have been an approach, for example, that like say, let's say move it had been a software as a service instead of a, something that was deployed individually. It's likely that the software as a service organization would design the infrastructure so that the uh, so that the apps that, that were internet facing or the aspect of move it that was internet facing was more difficult to attack the surface area that um, for attack was narrower or was better understood and so it would be less likely that that zero attack zero day uh, would be something that a bad actor could exploit I mean it, it, the more we move from, having, I don't know, uh, you know, server infrastructure in the broom closet that Bob has to update, um, you know, every now and again when he remembers to leveraging uh, cloud infrastructure that is managed by other people, I think the more we will see zero days become less of a problem. Yeah, and you, uh, you know, you said some magic words there, you know, that's managed by other people. I'm not sure. You know, we look at, we see attacks all the time on AWS uh, servers, which were poorly configured to start yes. with, for example. I mean, that guy, whose responsibility was that? Is that Cap One's responsibility? Is it the healthcare guy's responsibility? Or is that, a, is that an Amazon responsibility at the end of the day? Yep. Uh, and that's, I mean... I think that it'll be things like misconfiguration and account impersonation that result in the majority of breaches moving forward. That would be good. I just, you know, there's so many opportunities. Seems to me that the human factor here is always the biggest problem. And I don't mean that in a cliched way, you know, related to phishing, for example, attacks. But um, when we talk about the you know, the anatomy of the modern data breach, we see that, you know, we many of this, these things are have nothing to do with malware. They're sort of, you know, living off the land or just enabling direct access to, to data. Exactly. And so we're in complete agreement on that one. Uh, like the human factor is not going to go away. And in fact, it's going to be, in my mind, the increasingly easier aspect to employ, uh, to exploit for a bad actor. Um, a, a great example is the most recent or fairly recent breaches. Um, I think uh, Group IB are referring to it as octopus. Um, crowded um, CrowdStrike are referring to it as scattered spider, but it, it involves specifically targeted phishing attacks against people that have access to large data sets and then using essentially uh, stolen credentials, account impersonation to steal all the data. There's zero malware involved in that attack. I think that that, you know, we can discuss it, but I think that that's a far more likely anatomy of a modern data breach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What beyond, you know, so we all know that chat GPT is going to have an in significant impact on... Um, yes, on fishing, right? But I mean, you know, so all of the reasons why we could discover those things sort of prima facie in the past kind of disappear now that we have, you know, whatever you want to call it, sophisticated English language versions of these messages and so forth. And then, and then they're, you know, they're part of a, you know, larger social uh, engineering campaign as well. But there are other threats to you know, GAI, right? And what what do you guys 
worry about in in that regard i mean not from not from using uh, generative ai as a tool to you know get access to either credentials or pure you know the actual data but rather as uh, an emerging native threat all by itself i think that so generative ai in terms of a tool for bad actors i think the main focus right now is is the one that you talked about improving social engineering attacks um, and improving phishing messages especially for non-english speaking bad actors that sort of thing we're we're concerned about ai not generative ai but in in more accurately artificial general intelligence with it looking at its ability to find vulnerabilities in systems so so i would uh, characterize it in two ways right now generative ai at least the the way we think of it is most beneficial to the bad actors in terms of uh you know crafting messages social engineering um convincing people to do things that they wouldn't normally do so that doesn't it's not just limited to writing better messages it's also associated with convincing people to do things that they would not normally do so and and it's very effective in that so you know convincing someone to for example change the account number on their um, bank account for accounts payable or or those types of messages but not specifically say for example we're less concerned about it generating malicious code although it's capable of doing that and and we're monitoring that now, but it doesn't seem as though that's um, evolving as an area of um, major concern right now. But like I say, we're monitoring it. The looking and, and generative AI doesn't really have the capability, say, for example, of looking at your SaaS infrastructure or your cloud infrastructure and, and searching for vulnerabilities. But uh, I think AI is will evolve in that area. And that's a um, major concern for us as well. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure, and you know, by next Wednesday it'll be here. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but this is the fastest product release cycle I've ever seen. Is uh, with the uh, iterations oh, of of this product, it's just incredible. Um, I'm more concerned. You know, yeah, I hear you, and all that is correct, and all that makes sense. However, when you, you know, when I don't know, Mary over in investments decides that she wants to see what you can find in the chat GPT LLM world. Uh, and, and you know, this is absent any corporate policy, right? Which yeah, most companies, as of right now, have no, no cybersecurity policy, no privacy policy around uh, generative AI at all. And yet, as we saw with Shadow IT, you know, departments are doing whatever they do and no one's managing or controlling that. And every time that Mary, you know, throws some, you know, trading data that she has out onto that learning model, it becomes part of that corpus of data that is ChatGPT uses, along with another 100 million Marys every minute throwing more data out there. There's a significant privacy pro issue there, exposure there, and a significant IP exposure there. And You'll say yeah. that ChatGPT allows you to say, you know, don't share that. I get that, right? But Mary may not know that. So how do you how do you combat that? 
Right now, the com- customers that we have are seeking for us to literally block. So the customers that are concerned about that, which is, I would argue, the majority, which is slightly different to what you described in your um, introduction, but my customer base might be self-selecting towards you know, being uh, more concerned about the risk. But they're typically attempting to block access to generative AI sites for their end users as they try and work out how these tools can be leveraged because there's an enormous benefit to be gained by having your employees gain access to generative AI. But the flip side, as you point out, is Mary putting uh, next quarter's financials in, in the tool. And so I think that uh, the right now, the only strategy that we have is around um, blocking access to those sites, which is not going to be sufficient what we what we'll have to evolve and this is something that lookouts focused on is how to for example apply dlp and and information filtering such as things like redaction and so on on sensitive information that mary may not have understood that she was not allowed to share yeah yeah but let's say mary is uh is ambitious and uh clever and she's working from home and she has her own her own desktop right next to the corporate desktop and she decides hey you know i'm gonna get an advantage on harry next door here who's we're both vying for the you know best trader of the month or whatever right and i'm gonna i hear all of that stuff but i'm just gonna grab some of this data and ship it over to my desktop and i'm gonna send it out that way right and there's no control over that once it's outside of my digital domain that's managed by corporate so and and i don't think that's unusual right i mean there's that that assertive aggressive competitive mary exists in every company uh and then multiplied by however many you want to imagine but how do you stop that and that's like the age-old question: How do you stop the pro, um, the the situation where someone takes a photo of the desktop of a virtual desktop? That we used to get asked at Citrix all the time. You said I worked at Citrix at the in the introduction. They the um ultimately the human factor is the one that we have to be most concerned about in this particular scenario. The only way that you can really guard against that is to stop. Mary being able to move that information from the unmanaged, sorry, from the managed to the unmanaged environment. We can do that with things like forced encryption um, and management of the data to some extent. But like the example that I just gave, if she were to take a photo of a screen and then, you know, optical character recognition so efficient these days, you can pass it immediately on the the other machine and, and upload it. There's not much you can do. Yep, that's right. There isn't much, and so it's uh, it's a it's a it'll be an interesting world in which to figure out when has security ever kind of overcome convenience or advantage, yes. right? I mean, that's yep. so we won't sit here and debate that, but I, I wanted to raise it as a yeah concern that I have, and we yep. have. It'd be great if, if you could figure out how to do something with obviously the data itself is is where the answer is but how do you how do you manipulate how do you make sure that data is not not usable in any other format well of course there's the flip flip side of the coin as well which is if you don't provide uh, generative ai the data it's going to make up the answer anyway yeah right there you go 
So AI, has, on the flip side of this, AI has tremendous potential for one of the areas that we're terrible at, which is, you know, hygiene and patch management and all the rest of it. Do you, have you guys experimented much with, you know, using it to find open vulnerabilities and make up patch lists or, you know, to actually do an auto patch of any kind? Yes. So most of our experimentation is about automating the repetitive and mundane, uh, if you like, in our current, you know, our, our own products administration, as well as in um, security best practice in general. So, for example, um, being able to interact more simply with our administrative consoles to um, identify, I don't know, the group of Android devices that um, are out of date from an operating system standpoint and and there is now a known vulnerability for those devices uh, and what to do about it or uh, those types of scenarios. So so making that easy for administrators, um, that's a focus for us. Equally, since we mentioned that vulnerability through misconfiguration is a um, is a concern, so we're we're experimenting also with the ability to um, use generative AI to establish whether um, systems are configured um, with vulnerabilities uh, by mistake and, and and what can be done about that. So um, a good example is we've. Um, so in our business securing the cloud for customers, they typically have hundreds and hundreds of SaaS applications or, or cloud-based applications. And every single one of them, because they're fit for they're, they're targeted at a particular use case, they frequently have very different ways to configure access control and authorization. Uh, access to data, for example. Uh, we think generative AI can be very effective looking across um, all of those different tools, um, especially through API interactions where those tools have APIs to establish if there's, for example, vulnerabilities in the way that those uh, applications have been configured. So it, it takes the, the and, and typically, although I just talked about um, how generative AI develop um, can develop uh, hallucinations and give the wrong result. Um, typically, uh, we believe AI is going to help us in the areas where tasks are repetitive and and uh, you know it's difficult to see misconfiguration just because of the sheer volume of the problem. Yeah, well, and you know we're <laughs> we're essentially in beta. Right. I mean, it's been five months or something since this thing hit the hit the market. And, you know, I'm sure that the next release or two <clears throat> will probably solve the hallucinogenic problem. Um, but at the same time, you know, I mean, it feels to me like a lookout product, a suite of lookout products, you know, that you guys that would distinguish you guys from, you know, the rest of the pack in many ways. And that, well, if I can get that ability to do that to you know get those vulnerabilities patched to get the configuration the exposed uh, misconfigurations at least you know give me a list of what they are and what they should be um boy that goes a long long way to to moving the needle on on securing my environment um at the same time you know, all of that sort of automation can play its way into post, well, the post alert analytical side. So you, 
you know, you've got, and I used to run uh, socks, so I can say this, that, that, you know, it's the worst job in the world, the sock camp. And so you can eliminate a lot of these jobs, it seems to me. But if you look out on the landscape and you say, okay, this is the evolution of our product suite, we're going to go here and there and here. We're talking about a lot of job elimination, it seems to me. What oh. do you guys? What do you guys think? Yep. Yeah, no. Um, uh, one of the areas that we've actually been doing research and I've been um, looking at partners uh, in, in the sort of startup environment as well, as well is exactly that. Essentially, having AI look at the typical actions of level one um, SOC analysts and. If they take the same action for the same problem repetitively, you can very effectively enable that through, you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence and and reduce the number of SOC analysts at level one. Now, that's not, I'm not one of the believers that all of our jobs just go away because of artificial intelligence, because that will ultimately alleviate some of the um, skills gap in uh, in the whole cybersecurity space, but I see that allowing us to focus those people on level two, where it actually does require, at least at this stage, uh, human intelligence to uh, make connections and understand what to do in certain circumstances. And so I see that uh, that there can be a significant alleviation of over time of the skills gap in uh, in cybersecurity in general if we leverage AI correctly. Yeah, and uh, I agree 100% that you, and in addition to that, whether, you know, you'll, in addition to being able to sort of convert level ones to level twos, you'll reduce the number of level twos that are required as well, but you'll increase their efficiency uh, you know, by 20x, right? So, and if you move their function over to what it should be, which is detection and response and recovery, then, you know, that will have a big impact, it seems to me, on that whole process. I see, uh, and and they're not necessarily also just moving to level two. They're also, um, they're going to become responsible for training the models. Like, so it's, you know, in order for these models to be more and more effective, we need humans to train, we need large data sets and humans to train them. So uh, I see that the the roles change a little bit from, um, you know, fixing the problems to teaching the machines to fix the problems. Yeah, I wonder what would happen, uh, you know, going back to the adversarial side, wonder what would happen if they replaced all of the all of the uh, uh, malware that's inside our SolarWinds customers' networks, which we know exists in thousands and thousands of sites today with um, with code that they generated out of uh, a scenario around like, you know, they got that malware to be smarter, right? Sort of like, okay, you're there. What what are the what are the cross-functional opportunities in terms of vulnerabilities here that that were that you know could sort of figure that out better than humans could? Um, is that a threat that you guys imagine? Uh, to be honest, uh, our research team imagine all sorts of crazy scenarios like that. I don't know if that is one in particular, 
but absolutely leveraging artificial intelligence to um, develop attacks is something that we are focused on. Um, I think we're fortunate that that type of scenario hasn't evolved yet, but um, I uh, I do believe that unfortunately we are going to be facing scenarios where, where things like that do occur. And um, uh, I equally believe that as software um, you know, gets involved in everything that they're, I mean, the, the majority of the focus right now from a social engineering perspective is around mobile devices and, and you know, gaining access to passwords and that sort of thing for, for the extortion of organisations for financial gain, leveraging, you know, the theft of data. As software gets more and more involved in all of our lives and arguably even, um, you know, artificial intelligence, I believe that that extortion is going to move into other parts of our life as well, which is uh, very concerning to us. And one of the reasons that we're looking at how we can defend um, the, the types of devices that you might increasingly become um, dependent on for other aspects of your life. Um, that can range all the way from, you know, cars to medical devices. So uh, it's it, that's an area that we're very concerned about. Well, that's exciting to me. I'm glad to I'm glad to hear that because you you know you're absolutely right. It it's another level of risk that most folks haven't thought about here. I think, um, and it's good to hear you're thinking about it uh, because uh, you know it's that's very real and it's right around the corner. So yes, um, they they make movies about that stuff. So final question. I personally believe, you know, that we have happily handed over to Google and Facebook all of the all of the personal information uh, that we, you know, that they could possibly want. So I'm not sure. I, it's hard for me to get excited about the whole privacy world. However, um, we're seeing more and more and more opportunities for violation of the of the regulatory agenda that's in place right now. What is the impact from your point of view on on data privacy from the uh, influx of artificial intelligence technology? Oh, I, I think that you actually highlighted it really well before. Uh, the the fact that we're that generative AI has been the most rapidly adopted new technology in history, and in order for it to operate, you have to provide a data. It's inevitable that people have been providing it um, personal data, and it's inevitable that that will be uh, leveraged by the generative AI in its answers. Now, not in a malicious way, but it's unintentional. I mean, you can uh, manipulate generative AI to uh, to act um, uh, in a bad way when it doesn't think that that's what it's doing. So. Um, I believe that it, there is going to be a significantly negative impact on our um, on our privacy, while regulators and, and just the general technology field struggle to understand the implications of generative AI. We're like uh, I think many others have said, we've thrown this out in a beta form with you know no regulation and uh, no real controls, and we're sort of seeing how it goes and and trying to understand the implications as we use it literally. So we're sort of it's like we're trying to establish 
uh, you know, what's wrong with the aeroplane while we're flying along. So there's, there's an aspect of that. Uh, I think it generates huge amounts of innovation and I would not want to stop that in, in innovation, but the, the capabilities of generative AI are so far outstripping, for, for example, things like so far ahead of things like uh, regulation and so on, that I think it'll be quite some time before uh, we catch up with how to address this from a privacy standpoint. The, the last thing that I would say, though, is that there is uh, light from my perspective at the end of the tunnel in the privacy arena. I, I think that as people get more and more concerned about privacy, I think that distributed identity and better management of our personal information through uh, distributed identity has a good chance of at least uh, getting parts of that privacy issue under control. Yeah, I and thank you for that. I, I appreciate your perspective. Um, we could talk for hours about this. Uh, Yes, But we don't have that time. So uh, thank you, uh, Aaron Cockerell, uh, for joining us today. It was a real pleasure. And and uh, you're a super smart guy. It was fun talking with you. And I hope to be able to get you back on our show here in a few months and, and see what you guys have been up to, you know, between now and then. I'm sure there'll be 400 other new things that we can talk about. For sure. Thank you very much, Steve. This is great. Thank you. And thanks to our audience. Uh, again, this is Aaron Cockerell, the Chief Strategy Officer at Lookout. And uh, we hope you enjoyed the 30 minutes or so that we spent today and uh, look forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, I'm your host, Steve King, signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Insights. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook or send us an email at social at cybered.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybered.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, stay safe and secure, and we'll see you on the next episode of Cybersecurity Insights.